From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. If July 4th, 1776 ignited this sturdy so-called democratic experiment, why are we on the brink of fascism? Why do we have revelations about a sawdust Caesar, speaking of the 45th U.S. president, uh, marching with an armed mob to Capitol Hill on January 6, 2021, with the intent of overthrowing a legitimate election? It took the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to move the Constitution toward even some semblance of a useful document in terms of human equality. Go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world, travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me, that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, with recent extreme rulings by the U.S. Supreme Court, striking down abortion rights, gun safety laws, and the power of the federal government to curb fossil fuel emissions, even politicians are describing what is happening in the U.S. as a judicial coup. And many Americans felt they had little to celebrate on this year's Independence Day holiday. Combine those high court rulings with testimony that former President Trump planned to march with armed protesters to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and ongoing police and right-wing violence. And it's all enough for our geopolitical analyst, Professor Joan Horn, to conclude that the U.S. is entering an era of pre-fascism with more violence, including state-sponsored violence at home and wars abroad. Three days after last week's show, Gerald Horn participated on an Independence Day holiday special titled The Farce of You Lie on the Pacifica Show to Hill, D.C., hosted by Joni Eisenberg on WPFW in Washington, D.C. In conversation with Professor Greg Carr of Howard University, Gerald connects the dots between current events and U.S. history, including references to his most recent work, the Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. We devote this hour to conversation on the show with Gerald Horn, author of more than 40 books and the Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, and Greg Carr, Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. We begin with Gerald Horn's opening remarks. We need to ask the fundamental question, that is to say, why are we a few steps away from U.S. fascism in this country when on July 4th we're supposed to be celebrating and marking the anniversary of the creation of a sturdy democratic experiment? And yet we see that in light of the overthrow of Roe versus Wade, you have prosecutors in this country we're actually contemplating the death penalty for women who claim control of their bodies. When I saw a cartoon about arming the fetus, I didn't know whether or not to take it seriously or whether it was a satire. You have a high court that is in the process of strangling the Environmental Protection Administration 
uh, plunging this small planet into chaos, we have a Supreme Court that is unleashing even more weapons. Already we have more guns in this country than we have citizens. We have a Supreme Court that is seeking to encode a kind of white Christian nationalism in light of recent decisions, which obviously jeopardizes uh, so-called religious minorities of whatever stripe. And this is all taking place in the last few days. Now, I think that in terms of what is to be done, to cut to the chase, part of the political problem in this country, and we will talk about how this eventuated, is that the Republicans have no compunction, no hesitation in embracing those to their right. In fact, you can see the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters as the armed wing of the Republican Party, just as the Ku Klux Klan in the 19th century was the armed wing of the Democratic Party. The Democrats, by way of contrast, not only shun those to their left for the most part, but oftentimes join in the targeting of them. Uh, This has created an imbalance tipping to the right, which is one of the explanations of why we're tipping towards a a unique brand of neo-fascism. And in terms of digging ourselves out of the deep hole in which we find ourselves, uh, that would be one of the major issues to tackle. And I let me make a particular point of addressing the population of African descent, because in some ways, July 4th, 1776, was an effort to build a nation on their backs, on the backs of enslaved Africans. And in this context, I'm afraid to say we have a rather uh, obscene symbol of July 4th in terms of the late Jalen Walker of Mm -hmm. Akron, Ohio, if you can stomach it. Look at the video of these police officers shooting him dozens of times. And if you can't stomach it, at least read about it and try to do something about it. It's not enough to say the obvious, which is that this is a product of racism. It's not enough to say the obvious, which is that this is a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. In order to get to the real nub of this crisis, you have to realize that Africans, as historians have acknowledged for decades, if not longer, did not engage in class collaboration by uniting shoulder to shoulder with their slave masters, George Washington, James Madison, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson. Instead, by several orders of magnitude, of course, they opposed this uh, lurch towards so-called independence. And when you fight a war and lose, which is basically what our ancestors did, you can expect to be pulverized and penalized forevermore unless and until you can turn the tables, which is what began to happen with the Haitian Revolution, which ignited a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved with this collapse, which it did finally after tremendous bloodshed in North America in 1865. Now, what's curious, and let me address this to our friends on the U.S. left, oftentimes our friends on the U.S. left, when it comes to analyzing the origins of the United States, they've engaged in opportunism, quite frankly. They've abandoned their battle station that supposedly privileges class struggle because, as noted, they do not necessarily conceptualize unpaid workers as an exploited class. And like any class, this class of exploited workers was not only straining to be free, but straining to seize power. 
which is what the Africans did in the Caribbean, 1791 to 1804. But they abandoned this idea of class struggle in order to fit Black people into this overarching U.S. narrative. And at the same time, they tend to ignore the question of class collaboration, which inheres in settler colonialism. You go back to the 1580s in what they called North Carolina, when the English settlers invaded Native American land, What's interesting is that this was a typical class collaborationist project. Europeans of various class backgrounds uniting under the 1% of London for mutual gain. You cannot begin to understand how 74, 75 million people voted in 2020 for a faux billionaire, most of these 74, 75 million resembling the original settlers, unless you understand this concept of class collaboration, which generally is not invoked with regard to settler colonialism. In fact, if you don't like the term settler colonialism, come up with another term that describes an invasion of a land (laughs) and liquidating the original inhabitants. Now, I think it's also fair to say that the left has abandoned materialist analysis. Many of them salute the Bill of Rights, even though we know that the Second Amendment, which is causing so much havoc, these regulated militias were designed to put guns in the hands of settlers so they could repress Native American rebellions, repress rebellions of enslaved Africans. And this uh, so-called vaunted First Amendment, which guarantees uh, religious liberty, that was a way to escape the religious antagonisms that have racked Europe, Protestant versus Catholic versus those of Jewish origin, in order to unite them all in this settler block that, yes, could further repress Native Americans and steal their land and enslave Africans. And even if you look at the Declaration of Independence, the ostensible cause for the celebration of July 4th, why is it that the framers, which and I notice is published in newspapers all over the country today, oftentimes in small print, so you can't read what they actually say, why are they supporting <laughs> In the Declaration of Independence, so-called domestic insurrections ignited by London, uh, might they be making reference to the fact that in Virginia, in the run-up to July 4th, 1776, the last British colonial governor, Lord Dunmore, was basically authorizing and organizing so-called Ethiopian regiments in order to repress the uh, settlers' revolt? And speaking of that, Let me say that listeners might be well advised if they want a different view of the origins of this country to look at the multi-part film, docudrama, Book of Negroes, co-produced by BET, Canadian Broadcasting, and South African Broadcasting, which has some of the most uh, startling depictions of these settlers and their valued property that you can find in cinema, and of course, it was produced uh, not necessarily by Hollywood. And speaking of settler revolts, as the social scientists might say, we have a control group north of the border. Canada did not revolt against British rule, and yet Canada uh, has the initial emblem of attending to its citizenry by having single-payer health care system as opposed to this pay-or-die system Mm -hmm. that we have in the United States of America. And in terms of settler revolts, why don't these U.S. historians compare the settlers' revolt in North America to its peers, such as the one in Algeria in the run-up to Algerian independence in 1962, which shed copious amounts of blood? The only thing you can say in honor 
1776 is that at least, as far as we know, unlike the settlers in Algeria who tried to assassinate and decapitate the leadership in France, uh, the colonial master, as far as we know, the settlers in North America did not try to assassinate and decapitate the leadership in London. Or what about Rhodesia, November 1965, when the settlers led by the racist Ian Smith said intentionally and consciously that they were walking in the footsteps of 1776 when they sought to secede from the British Empire, not least because they thought London was moving towards one person, one vote, African majority rule, just like the settlers per the Somerset case of 1772 thought that London was moving to not only abolish slavery in England itself, which Somerset's case accomplished, but also that that decision would leapfrog the Atlantic and jeopardize the millions of dollars in property owned by slaveholders and real estate speculators like George Washington. Mm. Speaking of real estate speculators, and I'll close here, the other key to understanding 1776 is the so-called Royal Proclamation of 1762-1763, where London expressed displeasure at continuing to wage war against the Native Americans, seizing their land and turning it over to real estate speculators like George Washington. Uh, Rather than accede to these dual decisions with regard to land and labor, in a material sense, this is what triggered the revolt against British rule. This is what led to the United States of America. This is one of the reasons why 13 colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America began to expand relentlessly westward in succeeding decades, exemplifying the reasons they revolted in the first instance by continuing to seize Native American land, liquidating that population, and importing more Africans to the point where after 1776, the United States quickly surpassed Britain as the major slave trading nation up to and including controlling the slave trade to Cuba as early as the 1790s, the slave trade to the biggest market of all, speaking of Brazil by the 1840s, whereby London, after it lost its major market in North America, and after the Haitian Revolution made it realize that it was on the verge of losing its cash cows in Jamaica and Barbados, moved to abolish London's role in the African slave trade before the United States, the supposed democratic republican experiment and then abolishing slavery itself in the caribbean decades before the united states which accomplished this goal by dint of bloodshed Mm. yeah i'm (laughs) sitting here as always taking notes whenever uh gerald horn speaks i think we we would all be well due to do that as i was thinking about what, what gerald was saying you know i reflect on the fact that as you know i lived almost 20 years in philadelphia and i would tell students at Howard for the 10 years I lived there that I commuted to DC that every morning I get up in the city they where they made up America and take the train to the city they made up for America. And on if, this, if I were in Philly on July 4th, I would probably be down at the old Pennsylvania State House, which of course now is called Independence Hall. And there are two striking things I would always try to bear witness to. And many times I bring my Philadelphia Freedom School students down there with me. And I always carry a copy of Fred Douglas's speech, uh, 1852 speech with us. One was before the official ceremony in the front of Independence Hall, where they would give this Medal of Freedom. This is before they built the National Constitution Center. They would have a ceremony where they would bring out little children. And you see these little white children in Oxfords and khakis and, and blazers and little dresses. And they would all have on little white gloves, like they were getting ready to handle a, a precious document or something. 
and they would be announced. And it was a very small ceremony to my surprise. It would never be more than maybe 100 people there, including the families. And the announcement would be made, these are the descendants of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Mm. <laughs> and they'd say, wait, what? And then they would give them a little soft-headed mallet. And then they would proceed to where the Liberty Bell was headed. And one by one, I'm not talking about 30-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds. I'm talking about 7, 8, 9, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds. They would take them to the, the Liberty Bell, and one by one, they would strike the edge of the Liberty Bell with that soft mallet. And it always struck me that now, I'm sure there were some black children that could be uh, included in that, but it would have created a great scandal, you understand. Uh, because if you had traced the, where some of those signers had been in terms of the slave quarters, then, you know, it would have been quite scandalous. But anyway, the, the thing that would always strike me was, as you just said, Gerald, they would read the entire Declaration of Independence and including the line when these white nationalists breaking from their parents in England accused the crown of rising insurrections against us. In other words, crucifying the Native Americans and Africans for trying to fight their own liberation, something, as we know, the lawyer Francis Scott Key reiterated in his Star Spangled Banner when he said the hireling and the slave, you know, that, that song wasn't for us. They would cheer. And I said, look at these people cheering against me. And the children with the melon in their hand cheering against me. So that's the one of the two. But the second thing that evoked as I was thinking, listening to you, Gerald, was, of course, then the formal ceremony would start. And for many of those years, there, were, there was a black mayor of Philadelphia. They would always have a black choir. And Fred Douglas, of course, asks, he says, they that carried us off captive required of us a song. And it raises this question as I think about Gerald not only the counter-revolution of 1776, which you brilliantly extended with your book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, but it reminds me of two other books that you wrote. And you recall when we were in Atlanta for the unveiling of the W.E.B. Du Bois bust there at the Clark Atlanta University Center. I remember you standing with Alden Morris and, and myself and a few others, and Amiri Baraka was there signing some copies of his poems. And you were explaining to us your project to back map this contemporary founding of the U.S. moment. And of course, subsequently would appear two books, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism and The Dawning of the Apocalypse, where, as you've already begun to do, you really root what happened in the, what became the United States in this settler colonialism, which is a part of European expansion. And I'm wondering, as we're sitting here, you know, I'm wondering what would it take in your mind to create a national narrative. I mean, the rituals are here in D.C., for example, they have the big parade today. You know, is our, only, is our best option to continue to fight to create this myth-making thing of a nation, of a we, uh, when Gavin Newsom is dropping, running ads in Florida, destroying Ron DeSantis, and we see perhaps that the United States of America was never a nation, that it, as you say, it's 13... British colonies breaking with Great Britain and putting in that constitution, as you say, Joni, a second amendment that was really about self-defense. And then after they break from Great Britain, of course, and as you've explained beautifully and powerfully in so many other places, Gerald, including up to today, they continue to expand as Spain, you know, has their interests crumble in, in, in North America, as France has to concede as a result, part of the Haitian revolution. 
they are trying to cobble together a national identity that not only excludes us, but as you say, is built on having to exclude us. So how can we, uh, metaphorically, as Douglas would say, how can we sing our song in a strange land, which I would translate in part as throw in with this criminal enterprise in some way that's going to create something other than what it was intended to do? And of what use is the Constitution? How can we use a Constitution that really is as much about how people interpret it as it is about what is written? Given the fact that most of what we've been fighting for uh, in this country in terms of rights have come in some ways from the decisions of judges and not the plain language of the document. That was the voice of Professor Greg Carr of Howard University in conversation with historian and author Gerald Horn. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Now back to the conversation. With regard to the Constitution, fortunately, it's been receiving critique of late, which is justifiable because I'm old enough to remember when it was seen as a hollow document. But now even scholars in the mainstream and journalists in the mainstream are pointing to the uh, anti-democratic aspects of the Constitution, not least this electoral college, which set the stage for January 6, 2021, uh, not least uh, empowering these nine politicians in robes, speaking of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, who are ruling over us in a very high-handed manner. And I think that in terms of what is to be done, let me first state a broad proposition that may jar and then try to explain it. I, I think we really need a demotion of lawyers in the public discourse. Mm. I, I mean, I think if I had to go to court as a lawyer today, I, I would, a la Justice Elena Kagan, uh, adopt the slogan that we're all originalists now <laughs> and try to uh, mimic this nonsense that these few dozen Euro-American men meeting in Philadelphia in the late 18th century uh, created a document that was timeless and should continue to govern us today. But in the public square, uh, it's very disorienting. It's very destabilizing. And it really hands a device to our opponents because our opponents are on much sturdy ground in trying to turn back the clock by saying that we should be governed by a document of the late 18th century. Whereas when we try to say, oh, no, actually, the founding fathers meant something progressive, it, it, it rings hollow. And I should also say we should demote lawyers because if we fast forward to the 20th century, we know that one of the problems we're reaping the bitter fruits of today is that at a certain moment, our mass organization, the NAACP, decided to throw overboard its founder, W.E.B. Du Bois, turned its back on Paul Robeson, the tallest tree in our forest, and instead empowered a core of attorneys led by Thurgood Marshall, who then goes on to criticize Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and anybody who doesn't adhere to the line. 
And I've just read a, a wonderful biography of George Crockett, the late member of the Congressional Black Caucus from Detroit. Mm. And before that, of course, he was a judge in Detroit who attains notoriety, if not renown, by refusing to crack down on the Republic of New Africa. And before that, he was a lawyer in Mississippi uh, defending uh, anti-Jim Crow crusaders. And before that, he was the lawyer in 1949 in the what was called the trial of the century, the trial of the Communist Party leadership, including uh, the Atlantan, uh, Ben Davis Jr., whose mm. father had been a leader of the Republican Party uh, in the state of Georgia. And what's interesting is that Judge Medina of that in that particular case not only jailed the defendants, he jailed the lawyers. He jailed George Crockett. <laughs> Because of this aggressive advocacy. And George Crockett tells a story of how he then goes to Thurgood Marshall with the NAACP uh, seeking assistance because he knows that jailing lawyers for aggressive advocacy is going to backfire against civil rights lawyers. Thurgood Marshall, of course, turned his back on George Crockett as did the NAACP, whose leaders went on to support many of these foreign adventures, including the war in Vietnam, including, as I say in my book on Southern Africa, trying to flip leaders of the ANC, African National Congress of South Africa, in the 1950s to become CIA agents on behalf of U.S. imperialism. So they carry all this water for U.S. imperialism. I guess they thought that the bargain that they had brokered was eternal, but now we see that that bargain was not eternal, that that bargain was driven by the fact that Washington was under tremendous global pressure because of U.S. apartheid, particularly as African and Caribbean nations were surging to independence. And so as a result, Washington thought that the better part of wisdom was to retreat from the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow, and that set the stage for the Voting Rights Act of 1965, where at least by that point, you could say the United States could pretend to be a functioning democratic republic. But now the conditions that gave rise to those reforms have disappeared, which is one of the reasons we're on the verge of a possible fascism, and also one of the reasons why we should have a bit of self-criticism by the NAACP leadership, which can begin to repair the damage it happened to uh, exact on our community by, in 2023, uh, reversing their decisions, at least rhetorically, to sack W.E.B. Du Bois, to turn his back on Paul Robeson. They should invite the descendants of both to their convention. Mm. 2023 marks the 125th anniversary of the birth of the great Paul Robeson. Mm. They should then Mm. accompany that by seeking to reforge the global alliances that helped to rescue us from slavery, that helped to deliver us from Jim Crow, and turn away from this one milquetoast liberalism that has delivered us to the brink of disaster. Joe, that's interesting you say that because I'm thinking about not only your work and, of course, course your great biography, Black Revolutionary, uh, where you really explore some of this in terms of this NAACP uh, kind of withdrawal or retreat. Two other books come to mind. I'm thinking about Richard Kluger's book, Equal Justice, uh, Simple Justice, I guess, where he talks about the NAACP and the early battles they had over the strategy to attack apartheid and how there was a memorandum, was it the Marigold Memorandum? I think that's the one, where 
the argument was, you know, you can't nickel and dime segregation to death by trying to argue that separate should be made equal in these school districts in the South. You don't have the resources. We're going to have to attack this on a much broader conceptual kind of battleground. But I also think about, was it Carol Anderson or Bernadette Plummer that wrote uh, Bourgeois Radicals? Because it reminds me of your argument, which is just so powerful that, you know, in many ways, class begins to peek its head out after World War II as the black so-called upper class or petty bourgeois, I suppose, you know, kind of negotiates a truce with this expanding U.S. power that's trying to enter the world stage differently. And in exchange for some easing of apartheid restrictions and some of these things, there's a kind of loyalty and fealty to the national project that is demanded. And of course, the betrayal is not only to the black poor and black working class, but all poor and working class people. And as you often say, our, our friends on the left, to quote you, you know, seem to have forgotten that race is always an element, as Du Bois always tried to remind them in terms of class out there in the class politics. But as, as you're narrating this, you actually think about this question of myth making and how this obscuring of the roots of the American settler project and the European settler colonialism it comes from continues to lead us back to ineffective approaches to resolving these crises. So many times, uh, you all, if you haven't heard him say it before, Gerald often refers to the U.S. Constitution as that flawed 18th century document. And you're right, it is, you know, it's interesting to hear People now criticizing it, and of course, John Roberts is shaking in his boots, having thrown the legitimacy of, of the court in the trash for those who tried to desperately cling to it. It's interesting to hear people now not only criticizing individual opinions, but the framework itself. And I'm wondering, you know, what do you think it would take to not only revisit well, for some of us, visit, since we never got a chance to visit it in the first place, given the fact that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, people said, we could amend the Constitution. No, that was done at gunpoint during a bloody war. I doubt very seriously you could get legislation like that ever passed again. You know, Sam Alito and them with this, uh, what do they call it, the uh, the independent legislature theory at the state level, or seem to, you know, they want to make sure that white minority rule is a thing forever. But what do you think it would take to revisit or visit for many of us the fundamental structure of this polity of this country called United States of America. Do you think it's possible to write a new rewrite change some of that constitution or in fact the framework? Cause as long as you say as the electoral college is in place and in the representative apportionment, which of course colluding with gerrymandering is creating this kind of U S Rhodesia form you think it's possible for us to enter that document and make the types of changes that might allow this policy to continue as a policy and avoid what may be inevitable, which is its fracture, as we're seeing some of these states saying we're going to defy some of these decisions and we don't care what you say. Well, speaking of the latter, you know, <laughs> the 8,000 strong Republican convention in the state of Texas just a few days ago that there was a decision to perhaps reconsider the idea of Texas seceding from the United States of America. Now, I know that there are those who say good riddance to bad rubbish, but keep in mind that Texas has the largest black population in the United States, leaving us behind the cotton curtain, personally, is not something that I would support. And in any case, it's not as if 
Texas seceding would solve U.S. problems because immediately an independent Texas would begin to organize against the United States. That's what it was doing during its brief period of independence from 1836 to 1845, uh, attempting to forge a reactionary block in the Americas that would then jeopardize existence in New York State and California and elsewhere. Mm. What would it take to (laughs) reverse this tide? Well, we're in a deep hole right now. And it's going to take a reorientation of how we approach struggle, just to footnote what I said in my previous remarks with regard to the Black Liberation Movement, of which I consider the NAACP to be a constituent element. And it's the largest group, the most influential, has the broadest reach from the Atlantic through the Pacific to Hawaii, that they need this new orientation that involves, for example, attending CARICOM meetings, Caribbean community meetings with its headquarters in Georgetown, Guyana, uh, sending deputations on a regular basis to the African Union in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Not only that, but uh, perhaps being quite adventurous and consorting with our friends in Cuba in the Isle of Freedom, because what we need to realize is that in order to get a superpower such as the United States to reverse its course, I'm not sure if the present balance of forces, correlation of forces domestically, affords all the opportunity that we need to accomplish that task. And if we try to understand the lessons of history, you mentioned Frederick Douglass at a time when London and Washington were frequently crossing swords. Frederick Douglass was frequently found in London. Indeed, the uh, alliance with British abolitionists was one of the major reasons that slavery was abolished in in this country. And likewise, as I said, with regard to Jim Crow, uh, that also came out of a process and a vortex of international oppression. So that's the new orientation that's needed. Now, whether or not the leadership is able to adopt that course, even though the ship be sinking, as Michael <laughs> Richardson of the New York Knicks once put it. Uh, I, I'm not so sure if, if they're capable. However, I am heartened by the fact of this barrage by writers such as the late Tyler Stovall in his book, White Freedom, where he too calls into question the alleged progressivism of 1776 or the Haitian filmmaker uh, Raoul Peck and his uh, wonderful documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes, based in part on the scholarship of the Native American scholar Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz in her Indigenous Peoples History of the United States of America. And of course, I could go on in this vein, but I would like to think that this uh, bubbling up of scholarship and writings and propaganda attacking the myth of progressivism of 1776 will ultimately bear fruit. But what we need are political leaders intelligent enough to open the doors that are available. And also, we need more scholars, in in fact, to continue the work uh, that now the late Tyler Stovall can no longer accomplish. But Joni, I hope you don't mind if I interject. Oh, right? jump right in. No, yeah. Gerald, you really, man, whew, it's so powerful. I'm thinking about, and you've talked about this extensively, the curriculum wars, the wars against critical race theory, or at least using it as an avatar for what they're really talking about, which, of course, is white supremacy. 
And you mentioned when we were all together a couple of weeks ago uh, that you were interviewing uh, for your show in Pacifica, Sebastian Page, mm-hmm. uh, or his Black Resettlement in the American Civil War. And of course, that triggered my memory because I think Page was the one who uh, who edited that. Like, this is all in public view that Lincoln and his comrades were like, you know, just send them out of the country, send the black people away. But as you're talking about the possibilities and, of course, talking about mentioning Tyler Stovall and, and of course, yourself being at the head of that line in terms of these scholar warriors who are fighting in this moment. You know, it makes me think about how the education system and control of the education system is so important and how white nationalists have recognized that and have fought at the school board level, the school district level to try to prevent the type of, of deconstructing myth that scholars have been doing for a long time. When you mentioned, for example, Lord Dunmore in, in, in Virginia, you know, I think about, of course, the work of Carter Woodson and his crew in the journal of Negro history. I think maybe one of the earliest critiques and uh, dealing with Lord Dunmore's regiment in Virginia I recall was when Charles Wesley, it was, uh, who was at Morgan state for many years now? Benjamin Quarles. Yes. Benjamin Quarles. Exactly. But Quarles wrote about that decades ago, of course, but I, but I guess I'm getting to the, uh, this is the really fun one to get to in terms of this question. We do need more scholars. Obviously we need more writers and you know, better than I do the long unbroken chain of scholarship, much of it, black scholarship, from the 19th century even uh, and, and earlier, but certainly the, the, the critique is there. The connection to education, getting that stuff to young people, to the public kind of things like what we're doing now. How do we strengthen that work when, you know, ignorance, so much of this is rooted in trying to prevent that very type of linking up? In, in terms of battles, to show you the, the battles we're engaged in behind the cotton curtain, uh, we just won a battle in the state of Texas because in terms of teaching about enslavement and the slave trade, they wanted to change the term to, quote, involuntary relocation, unquote. Yeah. And we were able to <laughs> defeat wait, wait, wait a minute, Jerry. Wait a minute, hold on. I, mean, I, I, I read that, but please, could you take a second, please? I'm sure somebody out there had just sat up and spit out their coffee. Could you take a second and talk about that, man? What? Well, as you know, Texas has been in the vanguard of the struggle, the battle to make illegitimate so-called critical race theory, which, of course, they rarely define. But it comes down to trying to... Uh, sanitize and deodorize the smelly history uh, that has characterized uh, this part of what is now the United States in terms of Native American genocide and, of course, uh, Texas role not only in enslavement, being, but being a leader of the African slave trade during its brief independence from 1836 to 1845. And so some of the right-wingers, many of whom I'm sure were part of this Republican Party convention, aforementioned, uh, thought that it would be a neat idea to change the lingo, because I guess they feel that if you change the lingo, you can change our perception of reality. And therefore, we would toss out the window all of the literature and all of the understanding that's based upon a conception of slavery and the slave trade. And you do that by substituting involuntary relocation. And as I said, Mm. we defeated that. But that gives you an idea of what is to come, because keep in mind, as many of your audience know, 
that in terms of these capitalist producers of textbooks, because Texas is a major market for K through 12 textbooks, oftentimes Texas makes demands on these textbook producers and the textbook mm. producers then accede to Texas's demands. And so it might not be long before in Washington to Los Angeles, people are not talking about the slave trade. They're talking about involuntary relocation because Mm. uh, this uh, idea will not die a natural death. It will return. You are listening to a conversation between on the grounds geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, Professor Greg Carr of Howard University and host Joni Eisenberg recorded on Independence Day for a special titled The Farce of You Lie. And this is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Stay with us. of solidarity and global solidarity and how that has benefited us domestically. I wonder if you could say some more about that, particularly when we're in the moment where you see a reparations conversation being reignited in this country, but there's a strain in it that has become dangerously intertwined with almost a black nativism, almost a turn inward instead of global solidarity, which plays right into the hands of those who would prefer us to keep these challenges within the four corners of the U.S. or, you know, metaphorical four corners and not engage in global solidarity. How important is global solidarity to these domestic movements we need to be involved in? Well, it's the alpha and the omega. Uh, Just to repeat, for those who may have tuned in late, I think that one of the major reasons we were able to escape the chains of slavery was because of events external to the United States, the rise of the Haitian Revolution by 1804, the rise of British abolitionism uh, shortly thereafter, and certainly to escape uh, Jim Crow. That has everything to do with African and Caribbean nations coming to independence and the United States finding it difficult to appeal to these nations as long as people of African descent in this country are being treated so atrociously. So that creates a dynamic that leads to the loosening of the bonds of Jim Crow, which brings us to today. And what's remarkable about today is, fortunately, as you suggest, there is this discourse about the reparations. But if we are students of history, we recognize that reparations will be a pipe dream unless and until we can create a favorable global climate for reparations, which then brings me to legislation uh, that has been endorsed by apparently the entire Congressional Black Caucus, uh, carried by Congressman Gregory Meeks, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee from Southeast Queens, which calls upon the United States to penalize and pulverize African nations 
who do not endorse the U.S. view with regard to the conflict in Ukraine. Now, on the one hand, we're talking seriously about the recrudescence of fascism in the United States, which once again suggests that we're going to have to make appeals to the international community. And yet we're talking about endorsing sanctions against African nations when we're going to have to appeal to them to get these neo-fascists to take their knee off our neck. There's something inconsistent. There's something incongruent uh, about that. The whole notion of grand narratives of history. I mean, as we know, there was a moment in among historians and memory keepers where there was this kind of focus on specific events and chopping things up, as you say, using the metaphor that you powerfully evoke of Rodney King, freeze framing inch by inch. But you have done so much work in terms of grand narratives, kind of reframing narratives. And that's really the only kind of way we can begin to think about that, because you're right. People want to focus on individual events, individual people and moments, and then accept on ritual days like this. And it reminds, of course, of what Fred Douglas said when he asked what to the slave is the 4th of July. And he says, you know, your celebration's a sham, your boasted liberty and a holy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity. And then he goes into the rituals. He says, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parades and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. So, yeah, the grand narratives of American exceptionalism or any form of nationalist kind kind of boasting it all gets lost in the weeds until days like this, where the grand narrative is imposed on us again. And so, you know, kind of that to the voting question, uh, Joni and, and Gerald, please help us with this, because you kind of began with the Supreme Court decisions. And, of course, we've got some coming up on the fall docket that Katanji Brown Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor are not going to be able to stop around voting. The kind of, I suppose you could almost say in their defense, act of self-defense from some folk who say, well, I'm not voting because nothing ever changes. The Democrats and the Republicans are the same kind of at these moments of ritual kind of celebration, you know, folk rightfully so shrink from this notion of patriotism and the flag waving and all that. But then they tie it to a sense that I'm not participating in anything, including exercising the franchise, because it's all the same. Help us help us turn away from that kind of oversimplification of this struggle. I mean, how important is the vote and, and how should we even be using it? It, it? Uh Gerald, do you think? Well, let me mention another book, which has recently come out, edited by Lyndon Burnham, longtime activist in, in the Bay Area and others. The title is Power Concedes Nothing. Of course, that's a, a play on the phrase by Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without a demand and never has and never will. And it talks a lot about voting, but it talks about it in the context of mass mobilization. They talk about these campaigns in Georgia, for example, where these activist groups knocked on tens of thousands of doors, made hundreds of thousands of phone calls. That is to say, I, I understand why someone just saying that my casting a ballot seems like uh, spitting into the ocean, spitting into the wind. You have to connect it to some sort of mass movement that has a larger agenda of transformation 
as I know we're getting close uh, to the end, uh, let me reiterate some points that I've already made and embellish others. Uh, obviously, as noted, the NAACP, and referenced my remarks earlier, needs to head in a different direction. The reparations movement, which I support wholeheartedly and just accomplished and attained a major victory in the state of California, needs to realize that unless that movement is globalized and internationalized, uh, given the preponderance of the right wing in this country, uh, it's destined to be a pipe dream unless it is internationalized. With regard to the AFL-CIO, uh, like the NAACP, they should apologize to those that they ousted unceremoniously on anti-communist grounds. I mentioned Ferdinand Smith, for example. But they also need to look forward and ally with the World Federation of Trade Unions, which they shunned during the Red Scare, supposedly because of its communist orientation. But the AFL-CIO needs to realize that it needs all the help that it can get, and it too can benefit from worker solidarity internationally. And in that regard, it needs to pay careful and close attention to its left-wing critics, the critics in labor notes, the critics in labor today, for example. You can even see the workers who have been organizing in Amazon and Starbucks, many of whom have shunned affiliation with AFL-CIO unions thus far as being implicit critics of the labor movement who need to be understood and we need to pay attention to them. I'll end with the words of Fred Douglas, where you wanted me to, to read from his What to the Slave uh, at the beginning, where he says, go where you may, search where you will. Roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. Travel through South America. Search out every abuse. And when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation. And you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. Mean with Fred right. and turn it over to our brothers. <laughs> and, and, and just so I just also want to lift up Jalen Walker. That's right. Uh, shot in the back, I think, 90 times. Oh. So uh, talk about uh, fascism. It, it's just and there's been warnings out that you, you may not want to watch it. It's, I have not watched it yet, but it's just horrific. So he is now an ancestor that we will lift up his spirit and keep on uh, mobilizing to stop this moving force of, of fascism. Yes. And move in towards a more positive direction. But Gerald, you have the last word. Well, first of all, thank you for opening up your airwaves to this discussion. Uh, certainly, I appreciate it. Secondly, for those who are trying to monitor the rise of this fascist monster, uh, pay careful and close attention to any political assassinations, particularly attempted political assassinations. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to what I just said about what's happening in Colorado, so-called jokes, unquote, about uh, executing uh, high-level political officials. Pay careful and close attention to the killings, such as the one we've highlighted this morning, sadly, that of Jalen Walker. If those begin to proliferate, which I suspect they will, uh, you will get a suspicion, a justifiable suspicion, that fascism has crept ever closer, pay close and careful attention to the death penalty. Despite this article in the New York Times yesterday, which suggested that the death penalty is withering, the memo was not received in the state of Oklahoma because in the next 24 months, they plan to execute dozens 
of mostly black and indigenous men. What happens in Oklahoma does not necessarily stay in Oklahoma. I think that it will probably have knock-on effects, certainly in Texas, where they hardly need motivation to begin to revving up the uh, death machine, and not to mention Louisiana. And let me also reiterate which I began with with regard to our friends on the U.S. left. They really need to return to their own principles. One of their principles I've been made to understand is the idea of class struggle. You should look at the struggles of Black people, not least in the 18th century, through the lens of class struggle and ask what was their interest, what was their motivation to engage in class collaboration and aligning with their so-called masters post-July 4th, 1776, And if you say, well, uh, they could see ahead to 1965 voting rights, well, (laughs) I don't know. That sounds like fantasy. But then you need to also ask why and how it was in August 1814 when the Red Coats attacked Washington, D.C. So many Black people in Washington, D.C. joined the Red Coats and then fled on British ships to Trinidad and Tobago, where their descendants continued to reside. So once again, you need on the left to reinvigorate the idea of class struggle, just like you need to reinvigorate the idea of class collaboration in order to stop making excuses for the 74 million who voted for Donald J. Trump in 2020. And acting as the reason they voted for Donald J. Trump was because Biden wasn't sufficiently left. Well, I mean, that's a non sequitur. Then why did they vote uh, 55% strong for governor of Louisiana, David Duke, a fascist and a Nazi, and a Klan's leader in 1991. It mm. took an overwhelming turnout from Black Americans during that particular election to keep Louisiana from going fascist 30 years ago. And so there are a lot of lessons to be learned. And another lesson I might add, mm. return to your concept of materialism. Give a material analysis of the Second Amendment, for example, a well-regulated militia in order to suppress Native American rebellions mm. and rebellions of enslaved Africans, and stop giving so much credit to the Bill of Rights unless you agree the Native Americans should have been expropriated and rebellious Africans should have been suppressed. And the activist and prolific author, Professor Gerald Horn, will have the last word on today's show, which featured a conversation between Gerald Horn and Greg Carr, Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University and host Joni Eisenberg on an Independence Day special titled The Farce of You Lie, originally broadcast on WPFW Radio in Washington, D.C. on July 4th, 2022. Of course, this discussion occurred before news broke about the July 4th mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, that left at least seven dead and dozens wounded before the resignation of U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and before the assassination of Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. In the coming weeks, we'll be sure to discuss the aftermath of all of these stories. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam, and on our website, onthegroundshow.org. The music we played this hour included... Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers, Cloud Blue by Isaiah Roussan, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. 
This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.